Grand Canyon University makes earning your degree possible with over 130 academic programs for traditional campus students with more than 80 bachelor's programs offered online. GCU provides you with the personal support you need from complimentary unofficial transcript evaluations within 24 business hours to scholarships, academic support, and your GCU graduation team led by your own university counselor. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. This is the Goalkeepers Union Podcast. But Gary Lineker is the man who takes the Tottenham penalties and now on his shoulders, shades here of uh, the World Cup. And Crossley has saved it and follows Dave Besant a goalkeeper who saves a penalty in an FA Cup final. Extraordinary. Hello, welcome to the Goalkeepers Union podcast. Me, Matt Beadle here with the voice of goalkeeping, Richard Lee. Hello, Matthew. <laughs> How are we? I'm, I'm very well. You seem very well today. Like to be chirpy. Mm. Like to be chirpy for these feature interviews. Really like doing these. And I feel like we've moved them in a slightly different direction of late. Mm. Whereas before we used to delve right into a goalkeeper's career and I'd pull out some ridiculous stat from when they played against Rochdale in 1982 or mm. something. We've moved beyond that now because what we're finding with a lot of goalkeepers is that actually you can find them in interviews elsewhere, really, mm-hmm. on the World Wide Web, talking about their career, talking about all the wonderful moments from their career. And that's great and it's good and we love it, but we don't necessarily need to recap all of that Mm. so what we try and do is maybe find an element a moment in their career and then riff on that Mm. and then we get all kinds of magic we go deep we do go deep we go deep which i think is good because as you mentioned you'll kind of find as well with a lot of these interviews what they want to talk about which ultimately if they want to talk about it i want to listen i want to know and certainly the guest that we have on today loads and loads of stories like that and talk about experience referential experiences and being able to share those and give that kind of information to a young goalkeeper and certainly with this interview that you're about to listen to i do feel that we've really done that in a big way shall we get on with it let's crack on over to mark crossley This week's guest is a goalkeeper most remembered for racking up nearly 400 appearances in a colourful career with the then high-flying Nottingham Forest. He's one of only three goalkeepers to save a penalty in an FA Cup final. He's the only goalkeeper to have denied Matt Letizia in his 48 penalty attempts and after 35 years in the game came to an end earlier this year, he's now enjoying the great outdoors with his walking that is quite simply brilliant. Mark Crosley, welcome to the Goalkeepers Union podcast. How you doing? Afternoon, morning, whatever it is. <laughs> Lose track of time these days. So I have called you Mark Crosley there. I'm well aware you have a number of different nicknames. What would you prefer yeah. us to, to address you as in this one? Um, well, everybody calls me Norm, apart from my mother and my wife. So I think in the game of football, I've been known as, known as Big Norm. So, yeah, I'm quite happy. I've had loads of nicknames, some that I can't even repeat. Which Cluffy gave me a load of them, like you know, Brian Cuff nicknamed me loads. He used to call me Barnsley and Imbecile and Shit House. And he started to call me Jigsaw at one point as well. So I went to see him and asked him why. And he said, Every time the ball comes in the box, he says, You go to pieces. So uh, call me Norm. Brilliant. Great stuff. Well, in that case, Norm, let's start off with, and we always do this on the podcast, our quick fire questions, three quick fire questions to get us going. The first one of those is, What gloves did you wear? 
I wore loads of different ones, to be honest. I think first ones were, uh, were Roish. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, it was that long ago. They had pimples on. So uh, I like the San Diego ones. But then I got my first paid contract was with Puma. So I have to say they were my favourite. I got paid for wearing them. <laughs> Fair enough. The old San Diego SMGs, was it? The SRGs, if I, if I remember rightly. Was it them? Oof. God. I, I honestly can't remember. They're very, very colourful. I remember that. I can't remember what they were called. I didn't really take much notice about what they were actually called, but I do remember Sondico. So Royce and Sondico. Um, and I wore cells as well for a bit. But like I say, I got paid for wearing Puma. So that was the first time when we got into Europe with Forrest that we started getting a few quid for sponsorship deals and that, you know. Nice. Talking about colourful, the next of the quick fire questions is what was your favourite kit that you wore? My favourite kit was the one I've actually got up on my wall and the one I wore in the FA Cup final that season, 1991. It had like, it was like a greeny colour with like black di- black and red diamonds on the top bit. But the ones I hated were the ones, the yellow, bright yellow ones that, uh, with the stripes down. And I think there was a purple one with pink stripes down as well. I didn't really like them at all. Okay. It made you look fat. <laughs> <laughs> And I was never the slimmest anyway, so they didn't help me them at all, I've got to be honest. (laughs) And what was the most memorable save that you made? Well, I had quite a good um, reputation for saving penalties. And obviously, they're the ones that like like, stick out. I get asked a question a lot, why we have such a good record at saving penalties. The answer is, I don't know, I was a good guesser. But um, I think... a save I made, I made playing for Fulham. There's a couple of minutes to go and Fulham hadn't beaten Chelsea in years and I didn't really realise what it what it meant, that, that, that derby. I knew it was a big derby and one that Fulham looked upon more than what Chelsea did. And I just remember uh, tipping a ball over in a, with a few minutes to go from, from John Terry's, a John Terry header, which made, you know, we won the game 1-0. And it's always satisfying for a keeper when you, when you pull a, a save off and it means so much to the fans that, that you've you've got the victory for for the team, like you know. So it, it it tends to stick out in my head a little bit that one. I like that. That was one that we weren't expecting, Rich. Mm. It's a good one, was it? Yeah, yeah. Often we've had a bit of trouble with this particular question because, as we say every time we ask it, most goalkeepers Norm don't seem to recall many of their saves. And so when we ask no. them for their most memorable save, it's a bit of a grind. And then they just come up with a really well-known one that you'd expect anybody to say. But that's good because I I can't remember that save. Yeah, it was probably a routine, straightforward, but it was more of a, the importance of it to the supporters, you know, what it meant. Uh, well, I once played in a game for Fulham as well at Newcastle, and they got twenty, they had 29 shots on target, Fulham. And you know what it's like, Rich. It's one of them games where you just get the feeling that you ain't going to get beat. And it was only a late Craig Bellamy goal that, that we were 4-0 up and Craig Bellamy got the, the one for Newcastle. But... We were absolutely battered that night, and every single thing that came came at me, it, it hit me in the face, it hit me in the body, in the, you know where, and, and it was just one of them days where save after save after save. So that was probably my best game with the most saves in it. But I think, uh, like like the penalty saves are the more the ones that I remember more as well because they're kind of like in the record books, like the Tizier one and the and the FA Cup final one is. It's in the record books, so they're kind of ones that are important to me. We, we talk about that a lot on the show, actually, where um, 
obviously the level of importance often it will be those saves which are are named and rightly so because they mean that much more but quite often it might be that you make that incredible save you end up losing the game 4-0 nobody remembers it five minutes later because of the result um one of the things just touching on that i wanted to ask you again i'm sort of picturing you playing now and some of the games that you played you kind of always gave off this aura of confidence it looked like it came quite easily to you is that fair to say I think it comes. Uh, I mean, I got. I was. I made my debut was at eighteen, and how it came about was like, I was a centre half till I was fifteen. Keeper got injured playing for South Yorkshire Boys. I was the biggest. You know, there's no substitute goalkeepers, and I was the biggest player. So I was the one that went went in the goal, and I never moved from that day out of the goal. I was never quick enough to play to play outfield anyway. So. That was a new, like from 15 onwards, that was a new start. So by the time I got to 18, I was making my debut for Forest against Liverpool in the, in the, in the old first division as it was. So, and I've always been really laid back character and, and take whatever comes at you, take it, do your best. I'm a big believer. If you do your best and it's good enough, great. If it's not good enough, you can always say you've done your best. And I'm a, I'm a massive believer in, in, in things like that. And I think when I cross the white line, and it's what I talk to when I've coached goalkeepers, I've seen, I've worked with loads, and I don't want to mention any names, but loads that have, with technical ability on the training ground, a lot better than what I ever, ever had. But crossing the white line on a Saturday afternoon, they just can't produce on a, a regular basis good performances erratic all the time you know I mean and how you recover from making a mistake in front of a, a big crowd so I've worked with loads of, and I think God, oh, how, how are you not playing higher you know how are you not played at higher level and I, I think it's to do with handling it when you cross the white line in front of a big crowd and whether you can handle that because you, as you know Rich it's, it's a lonely old it can be a lonely old place out there at times yeah well this was one of the areas I did want to get into with you, because the other part to this is that, you know, you, you mentioned his name briefly, uh, briefly earlier. You played for a manager who, from my sort of looking in from the outside, I can't imagine that many goalkeepers would have survived, you know, given the kind of goalkeeper you've touched on there that might be technically brilliant on the training ground. But as soon as they step out in front of 50,000 people, are suddenly nervous and they don't give off that aura of confidence. I mean, you play for a manager who pulled no punches. Like, I'm sure he told you what he felt if you wasn't doing what it was that he wanted you to do. So I'm assuming that mentality must have helped you so much with Brian Clough. He was brilliant and he liked goalkeepers. That's always a bonus. Mm. A lot of managers, like I remember I was working at Barnsley and the manager took over there. Took over there. Again, I don't know what we're like for mentioning names, but I don't like doing it. But he pulled me in the office and uh, he, he got the job and he said to me, uh, I'll just let you know, I don't like goalkeepers and I don't like goalkeeping coaches. So my answer to him, because of like my character's character is, I said, we'll play without one then. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? So yeah. like, don't it's, it's insulting to us as goalkeepers for someone to say that because I don't think half the managers realise what an important position it is. And I think only recently the signings are like Edison and Allison are paying 70 odd million. Yeah. People are now beginning to recognise how important goalkeepers are. Yeah. They're as important as someone that's going to get you 20 goals a season. Oh, absolutely. It's one of the reasons we set up this and we've been doing this now for a couple of years and really going into detail on goalkeeping because 
you know, so often you'll hear a lot of the cliches when people are describing goalkeepers in terms of how good they are, what they offer, you know, good shot stopper or flaps at cross. I can't stand that. I, I, know, I don't know about you. Well, I cannot stand that comment. You know, when someone says, go and scout a goalkeeper, I go, well, yeah, but what are you looking for? What do you mean, like, what are you looking for? Just make sure he's a good shot stopper. But I, honestly, it really, really bugs me because there's so much more to the game. So let's be honest, if you're not a good shot stopper, you shouldn't be playing in goal. Yeah, yeah. And this is why we set this up, was to actually go into just a little bit more detail. Because, by the way, that comment you made there, and this, and, and I say this, and I'm waiting for somebody to tell me otherwise. I don't know a manager, a manager that dislikes goalkeepers who's got a goalkeeper who's performing well. Because it's kind of like that... You almost like bring it, bring it into the team. If you don't like goalkeepers and you're negative towards your goalkeepers and you don't respect the goalkeepers or the goalkeeper coaches, how are you ever going to be happy with somebody in that position? And again, I'm similar to you. We're not going to name names now, but I know three or four that straight away come to mind and they've never had a goalkeeper that's done the job they want them to do because they don't know the position, respect the position. But then when you go back yeah. to every successful team that I can ever remember, everybody, every single one of those teams has had a goalkeeper of note. And, and what I mean by that is a, you know, a goalkeeper who's got the mentality, all the characteristics that we talk about that make up a, a quality goalkeeper. But the biggest thing for me, more often than not, is actually having that mentality, that winning, uh, calm mentality. And I, again, I'm sort of picturing yeah. you play because I think back to the games in which you played. Again, that that kind of, you look at a goalkeeper and you feel confident looking at the goalkeeper, which uh, I'm not just saying it because you're on the call now, but I always felt that whenever I watched you play, you looked like you were in control. Yeah, and also that w when I was brought into the game at first first team level, I, I, I was massively helped with the people that were playing in front of me, like Stuart Pierce was England captain and Des Walker. And so they helped enormously. And I look at some of the keepers that Forrest had and Brian Clough, like I said, he liked goalkeepers, mm. but you can see why he liked goalkeepers because he had Shilton, Van Broeklen, he had top class goalkeepers uh, as part of, like you just said then, you win, you, the teams that win things usually have a top draw goalkeeper in, in goal. Um, it needs to be recognised more. And I think managers need to be educated more on goalkeeping. Mm. Uh, so, you know, a lot of the time managers just haven't got time They'll just say to the goalkeeping coach, right, who, who should we play in goal? Uh, is it, should he have saved, you know, like, you know, when you do your analysis on a Monday or a Tuesday, oh, I think he should have saved that. And then you give the explanation why he didn't and why he, he, he didn't, why he couldn't have done better. They said, oh, he should have done better. Well, I kind of disagree with you. Whereas if the manager's educated by a goalkeeping coach and wants to be educated, because there is a few, I work with Kevin Nolan, he loves goalkeepers. Mm. Um, and he wants to be educated. He wants to know what a goalkeeper doesn't like so he can coach his strikers to take advantage of what a goalkeeper doesn't like. For instance, I'll give an example. A striker running across a goalkeeper at the near post. Keepers hate it. They can't stand it. But it's an unselfish run from a striker. So he, all the, he wanted educated. Right, if we get a corner, what will that goalkeeper not like? Well, we all know if you if we get two people stand on us, we hate it because it kind of makes our mind up that we're not coming for this cross yeah. in, in, in a way. So uh, you would it would then take that on board and put two strikers on the goalkeeper, right? Let's stop him from coming and getting the ball then. And I don't think managers are educated enough on goalkeeping, and it's so important that they should be educated. 
So just to labour on Brian Clough for a, a tiny bit, Norm, you said there that he liked goalkeepers. Now, with Brian Clough, we know, and you've told many stories about Brian Clough and the fact that everything was so straightforward with him. Centre-backs, head it and kick it. Yeah. You know, your strikers, get hold of the yeah. ball, score your diving headers. Was he that straightforward with goalkeepers then? Because obviously goalkeepers in the modern yeah. day, there are so many more aspects to a goalkeeper's game and we can talk about playing out from the back, etc., etc. But what was Clough like then with goalkeepers and how he perceived goalkeepers to be during a game? It stopped the ball from going in his goal. That's your job. That's what I pay for. That's what I pay you two hundred pounds a week for. Stop the ball from going in the goal. How you do it, I don't care. That's your job. So, again, with him, it was all everything was mind games, and he'd leave leave you to it. I mean, I never had a goalkeeping coach under Clough. It, basically, myself and Steve Sutton and Hans Seegers at the club, we used to get put over in a corner. We used to do our own little bit of work and then we used to get brought over with the squad and we had to play outfield. Really? Uh, yeah, we played outfield. Yeah, because we played in little five-a-side goals. And you were expected to play outfield. You are expected to be. I mean, it was great. But, I mean, I was always good with my feet because I'd played as an outfield player. So I, I would, always had a, a, a lovely ping on me, a lovely left foot ping and a switch of play. And, and I could do all that with my feet because I'd played outfield. Um, but until the back pass rule came in, I think it was ninety one, ninety two season when you couldn't when you couldn't uh, pick the ball up from a back pass. Yeah. It, 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 I, I, I was fine with that. It kind of ruined you, kind of like your Jim Laytons and people like that who were no good with the, with their feet. But but I was fine. But I, I look back and I think, you know, like all that playing five a side outfield with Cluffy and all that. That didn't half help that situation. But. With him, it wasn't. He didn't tell you what to do. He left you to do it, but you knew. I didn't. You just knew what to do. <laughs> I don't know. It sounds <laughs> well, really silly, but do, do you know what I want to ask? Is like, is there anything that you? Because again, we we talk about goalkeeper now, and it feels like you know goalkeeper. The, the role of a goalkeeper has changed so much in the last 25, 30 years. And you know, you touched on there, like the back pass being maybe the start. Oh, let's say the start, but it was part of that transition and now you're looking at goalkeepers and how often they keep the ball and it's so so intricate and precise is there anything you miss about the simplicity of that that it was just a case of keep the ball out then it, I mean actually now I'd, I'd argue there's a lot of goalkeepers out there that are fantastic with their feet but their uh, goalkeeping ability isn't necessarily maybe as good as goalkeepers from 15 20 years ago I think uh, a good example is Bravo was Simon, wasn't he, for yeah. Man City? As and he was real, it's meant to be really good with his feet and all that, but he had the worst stat of of shots to goal in in, in the Premier League, playing with one of the top teams. So yeah. let's not take away what your job is, and it is to keep the ball out of the goal. But you can take away the term shot stopper because there's lots of different ways of keeping the ball out of the goal rather than just making a save. It's, you know, stopping at source. Can you speak to your defenders so it stops it at source? Now, that's preventing a goal. Can you stop? Can I stop Stuart Pearce? He wasn't a great defender at stopping crosses. So every time he used to have a go at me, Stuart Pearce, I'd go back and say, well, if you stop the cross, I don't have to be put in that situation. Mm. Now, he'd, he'd appreciate something like that. And I'll guarantee you, the more you say it to him, he starts to stop crosses. So... There's a mind game as a goalkeeper to play with the people that are playing in front of you as well, you know. So it's not just making a save, keeping the ball out the goal. There's lots of things that happen before you actually make a save that you can, as as a vocal goalkeeper, 
you can actually prevent as well. So, and this is where I get back to like the education to managers that for me, if I'm going to scout a goalkeeper, it's in the reserve game and what I'm watching him, I'm, I'm watching him to see how vocal he is. I mean, I, all the goalkeepers I coached, I tell them to commentate through the game because it helps concentration. So as the ball goes out for a fine right, you talk to yourself, it might seem a bit weird, but it, help, it, it helps concentration by commentating the game through. Uh, the starting positions, when the ball's in different areas of the pitch, where should I be? I don't just stand on my penalty spot like in the olden days. There's a certain position you have to be to be alert for if a situation arises where you have to sweep up. So there's millions and millions and millions of things that a goalkeeper has to think about when he's playing a game of football. But ultimately, yeah, you have to stop the ball from going in the goal or it can be prevented at source. I'm fascinated to know how you actually, how you improved your game then, Mark, because I've just got this vision now of you with Steve Sutton and Hans Sagers, just like three blokes down a park, just kicking and volleying towards each other and, and just getting on with it. So if no one was there to supervise you and then you just went and played five aside with the outfield players, what did you do to improve your game? Or I mean, you said earlier, you just literally, you, you knew what to do. Is that it? It was just a case of improving in yourself. Yeah, because we were, we're because we didn't have the coaches and we didn't have the video technology, I think it was just it was you it was based on natural ability. Mm. You're playing in a good team, so when you're doing well, your confidence gets higher. You know, your confidence gets better, so that always helps. But a lot of it then was down to natural ability, and then I think it was 1992-93. Frank Clark became manager of Forest, and he brought in a goalkeeping coach, and it was like. Oh, I've got somebody to talk to. I've got somebody <laughs> who I can explain to that doesn't think I'm making an excuse here. We we can talk it through. You know, we can talk things through. What what should I have done there? What should I have done there? What's your opinion on that? But we didn't. I honestly, we didn't have it. So from 80, 88 to ninety-two, ninety-three season, you were in a corner. You were doing your own stuff. And don't forget, no goalkeeping coach with M three, three first team keepers. And everyone wants to play. Everyone wants to play in the team. And I don't like this mates business either. Sharing cars to training with you with your goalkeeper that actually wants your job. I don't get it. Mm. You know what I mean? Uh, someone who wants your job and car share. Like, what do you talk about? <laughs> I'd find that. An I like that. Situation. I like that because we've asked that to a few goalkeepers, and they tend to not give the honest answer, in my opinion, Rich. Yeah. No, I was going to. Yeah. So how how was it between? You three, I guess there must have been like a, a working relationship in when you're out on the training field. But yeah, how how were you with them then? Like, what, what would you describe the dynamic of that that group yeah. when you've got the three like that? Were you? It were was you awkward. Really awkward because Sutton was first choice, Seegers was second choice, but Seegers was always going to go, uh, and he ended up going on loan to Wimbledon uh, because I'd I'd impressed as a young lad. They knew that they could let Seagulls go to Wimbledon because they, they were quite capable. That I, they were quite happy that I could step up to be a number two, and that was decided by coaching staff and the manager between them through playing in reserve games and 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 doing well. Now, so as soon as Seagulls won, Sutton then knows that I, I well, I want his job. I don't care how old I am. I want your job, mate. So you can. I couldn't be his mate, but I had to show him a certain amount of respect because he's 200 games in and I'm none. 
and I'm the younger of it. So you've got, there's ways that you can show you the respect, but you don't have to be his mate. Do you know what I mean? And you, well. That's, it's fascinating. I, if I, it was me, and I, I, I had Andy Marriott coming up in um, up behind me, when and, and uh, but I wasn't his mate. Mm. I, I knew he wanted my job. It's interesting. Do you know what I mean? So I had to make, I had to make sure that somehow, I don't care how, he ain't getting it. Mm. I mean, I had it, the, the one you know, time I had it was, uh, Mark Poom, the Estonian goalkeeper who came to Watford, and yeah. he came expecting to play. And the fact that then I, I kept my place, it was, that's the only time I'd say in my career I had that. But there were then times when I felt I was a number two and I made it too easy for me to be a number two, which now when I speak to yeah. to lads I speak to and give advice, it is, because it can, I, I, you know, I don't know if you ever found this, I guess, you know, you obviously played uh, the majority of the time that you were a professional goalkeeper. So, I guess you maybe didn't have it, but I, I see that with some goalkeepers because I experienced it myself where you become a number two, you settle for being number two, and all of a sudden it just is the way it is yeah. and time just passes and a season goes, two season goes, and you think, wow, I haven't actually really progressed here because I'm, I'm too comfortable now. So when I speak to younger goalkeepers, I actually quite like that, that you have that mutual respect, but at the same time, of course, the two wants to become the yeah. one, the three wants to become the two, and so on and so forth. Um and you've got to work together as well, haven't you? During yeah. during training, you have to work together. So, and you have to encourage each other. And and it's it's your duty to come. Someone who's younger than you, it's your duty to try and encourage and make them better. But again, you still don't. There's ways and means that you can like not let him have your job because. How- yeah, sorry. How did you do it as a coach? I was interested to know that because you would have had situations then as a coach where... To, to keep them happy. Yeah, yeah, keep them happy, but also keep that competitiveness between them. So it's a good environment, but it's an environment of like, look, you want his job and you need to keep your job and you need, you know, to, to create that between the goalkeepers. Did you make a point of that as a coach? Yeah, I think it's it's really, really difficult to keep two... Uh, first team keepers I've only coached at the lower levels so you like you kind of like have two first team goalkeepers if one gets in I'm a believer if one gets in he does well you should keep him in you know but managers look at that differently don't they they go no he's my number one I think he's better than him I watch him in training every day he does better yeah but this one's come in the team and he might not be the best trainer but he might be good on on the pitch on a Saturday so I'm like kind of encouraging whoever's in the team do well and and leave the decision to the manager. But as far as talking to the two goalkeepers privately, I will not say it makes you a, a, a liar, but what it does, it makes you, um, how can I put it? You have to like kind of work a way around and go, and you like tend to blame other people, say, well, the manager's gone with him for this reason. And yeah, but I'm still, I've told him, I've said to the manager, listen, this kid's doing well, do that. So I'm fighting your corner, but at the end of the day, it's the manager's decision. You know what I mean? So there's ways and means of getting around it. And I don't like it, to be honest. I, but it, football does that to you. It makes you into not a liar. How can I put it? It's like a, a you, you, you can like con, con yourself through situations at times. Does that make sense? No, it does, because I think this is the, and the amount of goalkeeper coaches that I've spoken to where one of the hardest bits of the job is you can be technically very good at what you do. You can spot weaknesses in a goalkeeper's game and that's almost the easy part. The hardest part is the relationships you have with the goalkeeper co- with the goalkeepers individually, knowing that you've only yeah. got so much power because ultimately the manager is going to choose 
who they're going to choose. And so you want to be as straight as you can with the goalkeepers, but then you don't want to lose the goalkeepers because, again, you tell them the things they don't want to hear, you can often lose, lads. So it's one of the hardest things, I think, as a coach from, again, our experience of all the ones we spoke to is that side of it, trying to keep them all as motivated as you can as well. That's the other bit is... You know, I can imagine as a coach, it must be difficult if you've got lads who are just genuinely unhappy with the situation and you must feel a bit powerless at times if you can't necessarily change it for them. Yeah, I had it, Rich, as well myself. I went to Middlesbrough and I went as a number two. And I'll be honest with you, I went for the financial package. Mm. Uh, My contract had come to an end at Forest. David Platt wanted wanted us to leave because we'd been there a long time and he wanted a new regime. Uh, I'd agreed a contract to go and sign for Ibs. Uh, I was on my way up there to travel to sign and I got a phone call from Brian Robson to go to Middlesbrough. So I went and spoke to Middlesbrough and the financial package like swayed it for me. Looking back, if I had to make the decision again, I probably might not have done it and gone and played regular because I was at Middlesbrough for three years and I played 28 games or something. But I got in the team when Swartzer was injured. He had an earlier operation. I came in and I kept nine clean sheets in 16 games, which, you know, as a goalkeeper, you do that. A team like Middlesbrough, who were, you know, no disrespect, were a mid-table team at the time mm. uh, in the Premier League. So nine clean sheets in 16 games, playing well. You get an understanding where you're back for. You can tell that they're happy with you behind them. You're happy playing behind them because you you know you know you're playing with good players yourself gates and palisters and people like that were in the team at the time so and then as soon as Swartz was fit he puts him back in the team so I obviously then want to go and see the manager to see why what's the point of me being here I, yeah I came as a number two but I always came as a number two thinking and when I get in the team I'm going to stay in I'm, I'm an experienced goalkeeper I've played 300 games uh, Brian Robson said to me if I get in I'll stay in you're a new manager you, does that mean that Every time Swartz says, he's your number one and I'm your number two. And he said, yeah. And I said, well, I want to leave then. And then, But he, he wouldn't let me leave because I was good number two. <laughs> so he could rely on. So then I become a problem. So I, I, I'm still showing respect to the players and all that, but I'm beginning to show a little bit of lack, lack of respect towards the manager. And my goalkeeping coach, who the best I've ever had, was Paul Barron. I, like, I, I'm saying, I can't accept this, Paul. You know, and he goes, well, it's the manager's decision. Da, 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 da. But the, I'm always thinking, is it really? Is it really the manager's decision or is, are you part of that? Surely you're part of that decision. And I think as a coach, going into coaching after experience, experiencing that, probably some of it was decision, his decision and probably some of it was the manager's decision. So, And then the manager overrules in the end. So it, it's, a diff- it's, it's really, really difficult because you've got two... You've got a, two goalkeepers that can only, or three goalkeepers in some cases, where only one can play. It's a bit different with outfield players because I'm playing different positions. But you you can become very, that's how you become, can become very comfortable as be, at being a number two when you actually know, no matter what you do, you ain't going to play anyway. So you can become com- comfortable. Um, Birmingham tried to sign me then uh, when I'd made it clear that I wanted to leave. They asked for a transfer fee. Birmingham matched it. As soon as Birmingham matched it, they then asked for more money, which was really, really annoying from 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 my point of view. In the meantime, ben, uh, Steve Bruce said, "Well, I have to go and get a goalkeeper, so you need to sort it. You need to sort it out with 
your club. Uh, otherwise, I'm going to have to sign this other goalkeeper. The next one I've got on the list, which was Mike Taylor. Yeah. So Mike Taylor ends up going to Birmingham because Middlesbrough are messing about. I've lost my head. So I'm kind of not being the person that I am true to myself in training. I don't want to be at the football club because I know I'm not going to play. They've just spoiled a really good move for me to Birmingham where I'm going to play every week. And now somebody else has filled that spot and I'm stuck here. So all them mind games make you have to be even more strong as a goalkeeper. As it happened, Mike Taylor left Fulham. Chris Coleman was manager of Fulham. And Chris Coleman then met the financial package that Middlesbrough had actually put the fee up to. But Van der Sar was there. But going to work with Van der Sar was, again, the financial package was like much, much higher. Going to work with Van der Sar, which was a big attraction. Going to live in London. I wanted to try that with my family. And also, uh, Chris Coleman was manager, who I played international football with, who would said to me, and I knew I could trust this manager, Edwin ain't going to be here long. He's going to go. We're going to have to sell him. When he goes, you're in. If you do well, you stay in. And that's exactly what happened. I got in. I played 16 games and and got a really bad back injury. So then um, that was my time over at Fulham as well. But that's where the manager you knew that you could trust was telling the truth. And that's why I went to Fulham. So it's all mind games and it, it can be something that really, really plays with goalkeepers really really especially in a situation like that where you're wanting a transfer do you know i love this because it's the thing is this isn't like a unique situation this is a situation that is happening all over the country all over the world right now when it comes to goalkeepers joining a club joining with the idea that as you say the moment they get in and they do well they've then got their chance of staying in and quite often a manager might say to a goalkeeper that is the case in order to recruit them because of course he wants two exactly. good goalkeepers at the club you know you think of again without giving too many examples at the moment we, we speak about Man United a lot on this podcast because of the fact at the yeah. moment they've got a Dean Henderson David De Gea Sergio Romero uh, that I, you know I cannot imagine imagine that certainly Sergio Romero and Dean Henderson are delighted at the fact that they're not in the team at the moment but it it kind of is what it is and as you say that's then when the mental side of it um, and that's also where you can understand why certain players, you know, who you hear stories of them use the term lose their head. But that, that's exactly it. You hear stories, they lose their head because they're desperate to play. And because of the politics of football, quite often they'll mm. be sat as a number two at a club, twiddling their thumbs, frustrated by the situation just because of the fact that they are an asset to that club. They don't want to let them go. They love know the fact they can step in and do a job. Um, yeah. And I guess that's the business of football, though, right? That's... That's kind of, and I guess then it's down to the individual goalkeeper to keep their head as best they can, knowing that at some point it should open up. Obviously, in your case, Fulham was that opportunity. But um, I can imagine at times that must be so hard, especially when you're living away from home as well, or you're living kind of a, a long way from, uh, you know, where your family are, I'm assuming. So it must be, or there must have been times when that was quite difficult. I think the, 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 the problem I had was, was when I moved from Forest. Uh, to Middlesbrough, I was 30 years old. So I was like 400 games in, like, you know, including cup competition. That. Um, so I was moving for the finances, knowing that I've probably got, what, maybe five years left at the top, maybe to earn a good financial package to set me up for the future. So the reason I didn't go to Ibs, who were doing really, really well at the time, and there were a, there were a few championship clubs as well that I could have gone to, but the financial package wasn't there. 
Uh, I look back now and I think, you know, I probably should have gone and I'd probably be 200 games more in rather than 563, I think, career games. You'd be looking at 750, barring injury. I kind of wish I would have done that now instead of going going with the with the finance but I was just thinking straight at the time thinking I'm doing all my coaching badges whilst I'm still playing I want to get the the financial side of it to set me up for life and that's the reason I did the two moves Middlesbrough uh, and Fulham I'm not ashamed of it I'm not ashamed of admitting it that it, it, it's put me in a position where I am today where you don't have to worry about money do you know what I mean but I think I would have rather have got, looking back, I would have rather have gone and played the extra games because I was a very frustrated number two. I guess this also comes back to mindset in a way, doesn't it, Norm? I mean, you said there about being a stronger goalkeeper. You said about being thick-skinned as well. Now, you developed, or your big decade really in professional football was the 90s. And I think it's been romanticised since the 90s that... You know, there are podcasts and all kinds of platforms now dedicated to 90s football. But one of the big things of 90s football was the characters that we had in the game, specifically goalkeepers as well. You speak about Brian Clough being one of those characters. And I, you know, I go back to the fact that, you know, he called you shithouse. That was one of your nicknames, right? That was on team sheets that he put up in the changing room. Yeah. Those characters that were in the game then. I mean, if you are a goalkeeper now and a manager and it was affectionate to you, you responded well to that. But do you think if that did happen in today's game, it would be something that a goalkeeper or a player would struggle with? Because it's not as commonplace now. And I suppose characters, those leading men in the game, aren't really at clubs in the way that they used to be. You can't do you, you. A manager couldn't call a player shit house now, could he? Because the first, after training, he'd be, he'd be ringing his agent saying the manager's called me shit house, whether he's joking or not. <laughs> he, you know, he'd be straight on the phone and telling his agent. You know, and then his agent would be ringing the football club, and then the word would travel between other agents and then the manager had build build up a reputation that he's not a very nice fella but then you had to handle that situation because I we didn't have agents then I remember my first professional contract that I got offered at Forest it was a blank contract put in front of me and he said fill it in he said I'll fill it in you sign it I'll fill it in and I'll come and pick it up on Monday that, there's your contract I walked out of his office Brian Clough's office absolutely delighted that he wants to give me a new contract but can I really sign a blank contract well he sends you out into the into the corridor and he's he says you've got five minutes to make your mind up so I step out into the corridor and I'm and I'm stood there in the corridor pacing up and down and he's shouting through the through the door four minutes four minutes <laughs> three minutes three so you go back in you sign the contract and then you pick it, pick the contract up on Monday morning, and he's looked after you. But there, that was his. That's how clever he was as a, as a manager. Sign a blank contract, straight away. He looks after you. Uh, he gives you what what he should give you financially and bonuses. And if you play twenty games in the first team, we'll rip it up and give you a new one. But then instantly, because I've signed that blank blank contract, I didn't realise at the time, but I do now. He's just built up an in, instant trust avoiding an agent you signed it because you want to play football that back then you know and, and i think that's how how it, how it kind of worked the manager was in total charge he ran the football club now 
it's player power agents and and that's i kind of don't like that side of the game like how it, how it's gone uh, power has moved from from the from the manager and it was all mind games like that with cluffy and that's why without spending a lot of money on expensive players we we were we were a reasonable um successful club that that went to Wembley a lot of times in cup competitions and always did reasonably well in the, in, in the top league under him and i think it's because and loads of other players asked the question, did he do that with you? Yeah, he did that with me. Yeah, exactly the same thing. You know, so we're talking about managers and respecting players but and, and calling names. But it's all like, right, can he handle that? Yeah, he can. But when you did well, he was like brilliant with you. Do you know what I mean? Do you think I'll that's... I'll give a, a, another little instance he did with me. is like, I, I passed my test at 17 and to get a car... You had to ask him if you could go and buy a car. So I passed my test and say, "Can I buy? Can I go and get myself a car?" No. Why? Because you're an idiot, son, and I don't trust you. I'll tell you when you can have a car. So when I signed that blank contract, I go and pick the contract up on the Monday morning, and in the envelope is some car keys. And I said, and I'm like to the secretary, "What's these car keys?" She says, "You want a car, don't you?" I said, "Yeah." She said, his daughter doesn't want that car she's just bought. He says, you can have it. I went, you wind him up? She says, I says, what car is it? She said, I don't know. It's outside in the car park, though. So I go outside, press the button. Doot, doot, doot. It's an XR3i with a black soft top. But little did I know, they're taking a monthly fee out of my wages to pay for Elizabeth's car, his daughter. You know, so... I'm like, well, it's 50 quid doing coming out of my wages here. She says, oh, it's, it's for the car he gave you. You've got to, you've got to buy it, 50 quid a month. <laughs> so these are the things that make you into the, that strong mental person crossing the white line, knowing that you're going to run through a brick wall for a manager who is really deep down. He might give you loads of bollocks and all, but really, he really respects you. That's why I think he was the best. He was always one step ahead and he was brilliant for me and I, in in general life now, he taught me how to respect people. He told me he taught me loads of things away from football, just in the way way he was, and that's what made me such a strong person through my through my professional career. Do you think that's something as well that when you went into coaching that you found quite difficult, Norm? Is that perhaps it wasn't the same dynamic? No, because I kind of like took my personality with it, and I took some of the things that he kind of like coached me uh, again like I say about respect he always used to say don't talk to me when you've got your hands in your pockets and it was his pet eight. if you're speaking to him you've got your hands in your pockets I never ever speak to anybody now and my hands in my pockets it's just something that I've took on board and like if I'm talking to one of my goalkeepers that I'm coaching and he stood with his hands in his pockets I'll say why you got your hands in your pockets take your hands out of your pockets it looks shit with your hands in your pockets it looks shit and I'm hoping that I'm passing that on to them as well. When you're speaking to me, look me in the eye. Don't look over my left shoulder or my right shoulder. Look me in the eye when you're speaking to me. Sign of respect. And I think with goalkeepers especially, the more you can give to them this, this type of thing. When you shake hands, shake hands like you mean it. Don't shake hands with a limp hand because it means you don't respect me. And, and Brian Clough taught me all these things. And I've took that forward into my coaching into my relationship with the goalkeepers that I've coached. And I'd like to think that I've like kind of helped in their progression, like, like uh, in what they've done. And they'll, re they'll remember them things like I remembered what he taught me.
four minutes, it seemed like four hours. Dropper and Terry's header is clawed away. He can't believe it. Oh, it's a big, big save by Crossley. Oh, he used every inch of his frame just to get himself across, and you see, just with a top hand, managed to get it over the top. There's a few things about your career, Norm, as well, that have always not troubled me. That doesn't sound right. I've always wondered um, why they happened in your career or, or, or what the story was behind them. So I just want to list a couple of them now to, to get the story from the man himself. The League Cup final, 1992. You've mentioned Andy Marriott already on the podcast. Yeah. He played in yeah. that game against Man United out of absolutely nowhere. He played in the um, the other tournament as well, that four members cut, the Zenit Data or the Simod, whatever you want to call it. He played in that game too. How come you didn't play in that League Cup final against Man United? Well, what happened was we were in the quarterfinal of the FA Cup and we got Portsmouth and we were already in the League Cup final. And I went to a 21st birthday party. Now, the newspapers reported it was the night before the game at Portsmouth. Well, it wasn't. It was the night before the night before. So it was the Thursday. But I still shouldn't have been there. I recognise that. But I was. And I had a beer. And then I had another beer. <laughs> and, then I le- and then I left my car. I drove my car with the intention that I'm going training in the morning. Da, 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 da. And then I had another one. And then I got into a brawl with someone that said something to me that I didn't like. And I ended up uh, pushing him through a, a shop window. Staggered back and it broke the shop window. So, uh, so I got locked up. Oh. I got let out at five o'clock in the morning uh, on the Friday morning. We travelled down to Portsmouth, stayed overnight. By this time, the message had got out that what had happened, uh, but they didn't know it was me. So I went and played the game, uh, not in the right frame of mind. Dropped a bollock in the first minute and we got beat 1-0 at Portsmouth. And then on the Sunday morning, the back page of the new paper say, Crossley's clanger follows night in slammer. (laughs) Um, And that's when, that was Brian Clough's first knowing who it actually was. I should have told him, but I just didn't have the bottle to tell him. I was ashamed of it. So I got banned from the ground for two weeks while he decided whether they were gonna they were going to sack me or not. Which luckily they, they they didn't sack me. But my punishment was to miss them two cup finals. Wow. I did not expect that to be the answer. Yeah. So yeah. for being out at the wrong time and although it was uh I was provoked into it. At the end of the day, I, I dropped the ball, ball against Portsmouth and I really probably should have gone in on the Friday morning and said, look, I've been in a little bit of bother. This is what happened. I still feel all right to play on the Saturday. but if he, And then I should have put the decision in his hands rather than get my mouth shut. But I was a young lad, I was 21. I didn't. I thought oh, I would be all right, you know what I mean? Everything would be fine. And it backfired. So, yeah, something, you know couple of things like that as young lads you just you do daft things and that was one of my daft things and my punishment was to miss the the, the Man United Cup final and the and the what the Simod did it was a Simod was it I think or Zenith whatever it was so I missed two, my punishment two Wembley Cup finals missed out on wow. the, the 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 best thing about it was the game after the Cup final against Man United the league game I was put back in the team hmm. big game as well at the time wasn't it that um, yeah. sticking with Man United this is only something I learned about you having looked at your career at, at a later date I wasn't aware at the time that you spent that period on loan 
at Manchester United at the beginning of 1990. I'd love to know just what that experience was like for you because Jim Layton was the number one at the time. Mark Bosnich was there. Gary Walsh must have been in and around. We know that Les Seeley came in, in two spurts that season, I think once before Christmas and then towards the end of the season for the FA Cup final. What was the story behind you going to United and what was it like working under Sir Alex and with those players? Well, the story was I played uh, I'd, I played three games in my first season um, at Forest, and then the second season I was introduced a little bit more. I played fifteen games the, that, the following season. One of them games being at Old Trafford away, we got beat one nil. But I'd played in the game and done really, really well. Now I was put back into the reserve team at Forest, and Sutton was put back in the team, so I'd been introduced a little bit more. So playing the reserve game at Scarborough, it was a game actually. I think I think Keeney had come over around about the same time from Ireland. And he'd played in a few games as well, but Cluffy never missed a reserve game. And at, at, when we got on the bus uh, after the Scarborough reserve game, uh, he said to me, uh, get your boots and your gloves. You're going to Manchester United in the morning. I said, pardon? <laughs> he said, get your boots and your gloves. He says, you're going to Manchester United in the morning. You're meeting Mike Duxbury at Junction, whatever it was, at the services, and he's going to take you to training. You're going for a month on loan. Uh, young Bosnich, young Bosnich can't get a work permit. Manchester United knocked us out the FA Cup, but they haven't got any cover. So I'm doing, Cluffy said, I'm doing Sir Alex a favour and I'm sending you. I said, okay, no problem. So again, so on the Thursday, I'm playing in the reserve game. On the Friday, I'm training at the Cliff at Old Trafford. Um, but no, brilliant. I got there. Mike Duxbury met me, took me in. And what I noticed about, the, I relate the two managers, Clough and Ferguson. What I noticed was, the way that they, and I've spoke about it already, they ran the football club. They ran the club. So the first thing that Sir Alex did to me was take me to the canteen and he'd go, this is Margaret, this is uh, uh, Eileen. Uh, they're the two, they cook all your food. If you want anything, ask them. And then they'd go, uh, morning, Mark, how are you doing? I know. So, uh, so what I noticed straight away, and this was exactly the same at Forest. The people that cook your dinner and the people that cleaned right through to the groundsman, I was introduced to every single one of them on the first morning and they were treated exactly the same as the captain of the football club was was, was treated. And that's why they were they became so successful and we had exactly the same thing under Cluffy. You were made to respect the cleaning ladies, the kit man, and, and you become a family. You become a family. For me, that's how you become a successful football club. Well, Edwin van der Sar, you've mentioned as well, went on to become a very good Manchester United goalkeeper. You said that you worked with him at Fulham. What was that like to train with Edwin van der Sar? What was he like as a character? And did you learn from him at such a, a later stage in your career? Brilliant. Great guy. And I, he paid me a really good compliment because I said to him, I said to him, he was that good. And, and you watch him in training and, and, he, and he's that good. And, he's, and he plays outside in 8v8 and he's the best player unbelievable scoring overhead kicks and everything <laughs> no we as goalers we like to think we like centre forward sometimes and all that he could probably have played Edwin um, but not uh, not uh, as a trainer I wouldn't say he worked his worked his nuts off it was just everything was so natural to him he was a very advanced goalkeeper played very high uh, which I think, for me, I think the game's changing. Goalkeepers are making saves a lot deeper now in the goal because the ball moves, moves so fast, more reaction time. But Edwin was very forward, 
but he was that good at it that the one thing he didn't do is was he didn't speak, never spoke in games. Really? And I said to Giggs, uh, like uh, Ryan Giggs, I said, when you played with Edwin, I said, did, did, he, did he speak? He went, yeah, he never shut up. I went, you jo- you're joking. I says, well, when is it Fulham has never spoke? And I said to Edwin, I said, why don't you ever speak to your, to your defence? Well, they should they should know what they're doing, and uh, I know what they're doing. And I goes, yeah, but if you speak to them more, big man, and all that, you're gonna you're gonna help them. And he paid me a brilliant compliment, saying that he learned so much just through our conversations about talking to to back four four, but which which made me feel really really proud, like you know that we'd had that conversation. A great great guy, Edwin. Great guy. Yeah, do you know, on that note, and I want to talk about, when it comes to communication, you just touched on it there about talking. You mentioned it earlier on as well. And I get the impression, like the belief that you have as to being able to stop attacks at source by having good communication, a good relationship with those defenders in front of you. Was that something that just came naturally to you? Were you always quite vocal? Or was it something you put a lot of thought and effort into? I mean, if you were to advise a young goalkeeper now, certainly when you're a goalkeeper coach, would you work with them on their communication with their defence? I would. And as a coaching session, I would stand behind them in the games and I'd speak for them. So that's how I would coach them, is speaking for them, uh, standing behind, behind them in little small games or team play and stuff like that. So that's how I would coach them. But it's so important But I never, when I first got into the team, because I was quite shy, you didn't know what you're coming into. I didn't speak a lot, but Stuart Pierce, like I say, I've mentioned before, Stuart Pierce loved information from behind. So when to tuck in, when to go out, get tight. Des Walker used to say to me, playing against Shearer today, he goes, no, all I want to know is which shoulder and how far. So if you go five yards left shoulder, I know Shearer's five yards off my left shoulder. I'm looking at the ball, but I know where he is. That's the only the information I want. And it works. And coming across you, you like to know if they were coming across. Information like that, not not information like squeeze up, get out. Yeah, okay, they're, they're the natural things. But the little, small, detailed communication, to, uh, mainly to your centre-backs more than what your full-backs. I mean, it's easy. Stop the cross, stop the cross. How do you stop the cross? Well, you know, then you've got to look at the player you're playing against. What does he like to do? Are you playing against a Peter Beakery who likes to chop back, chop back, chop back? Are you going to defend that? Just let him do his let him do his chopping. Just don't get too close to him, you know. So, but you can you can do your communication off the pitch as well as on it as well. So you can get you can. It's like working in Morse code, isn't it? You like you get your own little things with your, with your defenders that you're playing against. Find out all your who you're actually playing against the, the opposition on the day. And you can do your little bits of information off the pitch and then take it onto the pitch, that, that information that, that you spoke about. And I'm a, I'm a massive believer in it. Yeah, it's huge. I just think that the bit that you said there that was really interesting to me was uh, in terms of Des Walker saying to you, this is what I want in terms of communication. Because I think there's... Yeah. One of the things I noticed working with some of the goalkeepers that I do, they will... And it's all good and well that they talk almost to tick a box. They're not necessarily doing it to impact a game. It's like they've exactly. been told, I need to talk, I need to... And it's almost like commentary. And what happens is that those in front of them don't actually listen in the end. And all it ends up being is, fine, you're talking all game, but you're not impacting what's going on. And that needs to be... And you need to be quite confident in order to do this. But you need to speak to your defenders, right? And you need to be like, yeah. look, how do I get the best out of you? How will you listen to me? What do I need to say to you? And it is, it's those short, sharp commands. It might be saying their name, yeah. and as you say, 
five yards, left shoulder. It can be as simple as that. But you know if they can hear that and they're listening to that, that might be the difference of them getting a flick on the header away for a corner or the opposition scoring a goal against you. You know, it can be such a small detail, but they're the details that no one will ever see on TV. You're never going to see a commentator praise a goalkeeper for a great bit of communication. Yet the best goalkeepers in the world, again, and I'm sure you must have seen this with a lot of the other goalkeepers you've seen and worked with, the best goalkeepers in the world are often the best communicators. They are. Uh, I just just on that point as well. I, I, one thing that sticks out in my mind. Um, I played with Andy Melville, mm. and we used to talk a lot uh, off the pitch. And we were playing QPR one day, and we talked on the Thursday and the Friday, saying, "Right, we're playing against." Uh, I can't remember who it was, but he likes to put him from the left, but he's right-footed. He loves to come in, and he loves to curl that one. But as a goalkeeper, when when they're coming in from the left or on the right, you don't want to do, get done with that one backing at your near post. You, that's the one we don't like. The bender around you, we can make a obviously we can make a camera save or whatever. But the one that gets cut and goes through the legs. So we thought, how can we stop that? Because um, so Andy Melville said, right, let's let's re, let's replay the situation. So we'd do it on the training ground and go. And we get one of the young lads to like cut inside with the ball, cut inside, and Melv would take up a false position. And he said, I'm just going to make sure that he doesn't hit the ball through my legs back at your knee. You take care of the rest. And it happened against QPR, and, we, and I made the save, but it came straight in the midriff. I walked right up to the edge of the penalty area, I five Melv, and only me and him knew why we were doing it. Why has he just high-fived in there? He's just hit it straight into his... Because what Melva's prevented, he's prevented the one through the legs back at your near stick. And I am in a, I've exaggerated my position probably one step left to what I'd normally be, which made it a midriff, midriff save. So the only me and Mel, because we'd spoke on the Thursday and the Friday and replayed the situation, actually invented the situation before it happened, knowing with the technology that we are, that we can do that. And that can be our com- communication. So my communication to Mel then was, stop the one to the near, stop the one to the near, which would just remind him to stop the one to going through his legs to the near. Mm. I'll take it. And that's telling him a few things. It's telling him, I'm taking care of the bender. You're not, you're not dangling a leg to let it come back through your legs. You're keeping your leg, your feet really, really close together. And then when it happens, it's great. It's a great feeling. So they're the little bits of communication, what we're talking about, which is the fine line communication rather than the squeeze out, get out, get out. You know, that, 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 that's, there's more to communication than just speaking for the sake of it. Yeah, brilliant. Were you a communicator? Well, do you know what? I think towards the end, it's, yeah, and it's why it's a, fa- it's a subject that fascinates me now. Like, so normal, I'll often talk on here about like if goalkeeping was a subject, you know, what grade would you get? Because I think it's, of course, as a goalkeeper, you enjoy going and doing the training, doing the diving around and, and that side of it. It's fun. But you could break goalkeeping down into a thousand different small mm-hmm. attributes. And it's just one that I think as you get older, you have a bit more of a, or certainly for me, I had a bit more of a realization that I can have a lot more of an impact. It's kind of, I didn't really understand what I was doing maybe when I was a bit younger. You just, you say what you say. There's certain commands, whether it's, as you say, squeeze yeah. up, hold, left shoulder, right shoulder, um, you know, yeah. very basic commands that you'd learn. And I would be shouting all this during the game and anyone watching would be like, well, I, he talks a lot, but I didn't really impact yeah. the game. It wasn't, I wasn't connected with the game. And I think that's the, 
the bit that I, I'd love to, and I, I, you know, I don't coach now. I've done bits and pieces a few years ago, but I don't coach now. Obviously, you, I know you, you're not coaching now either, Norm. But I know I can no. imagine when you're coaching, it's it must be as you said. I didn't, that's quite a nice way of doing it. The, the way in which you stand behind a goalkeeper's goal, so you're mm. actually showing them. You're not just telling them; you are showing them, and they'll be able to see. And this is again, we get so many goalkeeper coaches to listen to this this podcast. No doubt they'll be listening to this bit in particular and be really interested by this because I think that as an idea you're giving them a visual they're going to be able to see what's going on in front of them they're going to be able to see that the communication you're giving is actually changing the picture in front of you and actually that much less that you have to do you think the amount of chances that could have been stopped four or five times before it gets anywhere near the goalkeeper and if you could yeah. just impact one of those players it makes such a difference yeah, I think also if if when once you're coaching behind the goalkeeper as well, um, so say we're having a, a pattern of play and and we're having waves of attack against us, overloads. So I would say to the back four that are in place, I would go up to them and say, "Listen, I'm learning the keeper today. I'm coaching. I'm doing the coaching. So I'm going to speak for him. So do what I say. So as I'm as as the pattern of play is coming." I'm talking to you, it's not him. I'm going to be stood behind him, but I'm going to be doing his, his talking. And then next next wave of attack, he's going to be doing it this time. Next wave of attack, I'll do it. Next wave of attack, he'll do it. And then there becomes a pattern where he's, he's my value of my experience in, in talking to my, my back four or back three, whatever it may be, um, He's, he's getting my experience and he's taking it into his game. Uh, one goalkeeper, we improve loads with it. And I've only coached at lower levels, so, you, you know, but um, Tom, a lad called Tommy Lee, I loved working with him, his work ethic and, and how we improved him, not just me, but we improved him together is the most joy I've actually had out of coaching one particular goalkeeper. He's now coaching at Sheffield United Academy and he still rings me up and he'll go, you know what I did today, Norm? I did this session and I did that and it's really worked with the keepers. And that still makes me to this day feel like, you know, I worked with Tommy all them years. We made him to a better goalkeeper. He's retired. He's gone into the coaching. He's got his own way of coaching, but he's took some of my information with him and it's still working. And it, and, and that's great. Just on Tommy Lee, actually. I got to know him quite well myself. And it's such a shame because he retired with his shoulder, didn't he? Shoulder injury. Yeah. You kind of felt like I, I could have seen his next... Move, given that it built such a good profile, got such a good CV, and it was so solid at that level, you kind of felt yeah. like his next move would have been up a league or two. But yeah, unfortunately, just couldn't couldn't get over that shoulder injury. But yeah, top top goalkeeper. I tried to get him. I tried. I tried to help get him a move. And he, although we didn't want to lose him, I, I was people that were calling up saying, "Tell me about Tommy," and I'm going, "Take him, take him, take him. You'll love him." Yeah. The question, the the question was, his, his kicking improved a lot, but it wasn't great, and the, everybody just said he was he was a couple of inches too small. Mm. Uh, that's what that that's that's the general thing, and that's the general question these days, isn't it? Yeah. You're coaching, a, you're, you're scouting a goalkeeper. First question the manager said, "How big is he?" Yeah. Well, he's six foot one, but he can jump six foot seven, so I, you know he's not too bad. <laughs> you know what I mean? Or you go for the six foot four one that can jump six foot five. I don't know. I think I'd rather have the the one that can, the other one, the springy one. Yeah. But you know, it's it's trying to again. It's again. It's educating these managers on 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 our thoughts. We're the professionals. We know what we're talking about when it comes to goalkeeping. But sometimes um, managers just look at goalkeepers as as a as a mannequin. 
Crossley. And Mark Crossley, who has a real record of saving penalties, has saved a crucial one here at the start of the shootout. Ronnie Rosenthal, the hero of the fifth round replay a year ago at Southampton. Crossley again. He's two out of two this season, Sheringham. It's Crossley again, and Nottingham Forest are through. On the back of three penalty saves from Mark Crossley. Catch me if you can. Okay, just uh, a couple more questions, Norm, before we get on to, to what you're doing now, this new age of Twitter stardom that you seem to have uh, developed for yourself. But we've got to talk about penalties. We have to, really. It would be remiss on a goalkeeper podcast not to talk about penalties with you. I saw one stat, actually, from 2002, so a long time ago. But at that point, it was calculated you'd saved 57% of the penalties you'd faced up to that point, which is pretty incredible. We know about the FA Cup final stop from Gary Lineker. We know the famous Matt Letizia stop in that game between Forrest and Southampton, the only penalty that he had saved. There was another penalty shootout I wanted to discuss with you because you had a great record against Spurs. You saved one from Alan Nielsen, I think, in a game at the City Ground in the late 90s. In 1996, the FA Cup, you saved three penalties in the penalty shootout and then produced one of the best celebrations I think I've ever seen from a goalkeeper. <laughs> uh, yeah, again, I think I'm not a massive believer that there's there's um, a great deal behind it. You know, we can study all the technology and we can watch the run-ups and we can watch where they put them and where they prefer to put them, the strikers. But you know what? I think if you go off your instinct and you go on what you believe is right for you, I think without all that information... I think you stand a better chance. I would always say go off your own instincts, which is all I ever did. Uh, one thing I did try to do, I tried to delay as long as possible. So I know a striker wants to get the ball down and, and get it taken quickly. And I just, I, I tried to delay. I tried to play games and there's no pressure on us when, when we're a goalkeeper in goal. There's no pressure on us to save it. So I'll try and have a laugh and a joke with a striker as well. And I remember one of those saves at White Hart Lane. The last one was from Teddy. And Teddy had been at Forest the year before, Teddy Sheringham. And all I said to Teddy was, hey, Teddy, don't forget, I know where you put him. Hmm. And he gave me a little smile. And I still didn't know whether where he was going to put it. But I think if you can play those games and, and look really relaxed that there's no pressure on you, I just think it puts a, a lot more pressure on on the striker that's coming to take it. And I don't know, you could say you could say I was a good anticipator, you could say I was a good guesser. I don't know, but I really don't think there's too much method behind it at all. That's just that, that's just my belief. But the celebrations, Jesus Christ. Oh my <laughs> God. Ran the full length know, of the I pitch. I don't know. I just, again, it's just adrenaline, isn't it? You know what I mean? And yeah. you get, I managed to get to the other end of the pitch. You know, you know when you, when you was young and you used to pinch apples off trees and you, you, people used to chase you. They never used to catch you, did you? Because you could always run faster. Yeah. And I think that's the I think that's the adrenaline. Because uh, I've never been the quickest, but that day nobody could catch me, and uh, I got to the other box and tried to do the, Clint, the Klinsman dive and uh, it didn't particularly work in slide very far. <laughs> but hey, who cares? Uh, uh, Leticia, that kind of moment, you kind of almost became mates with him as a result of that. Is that yeah. fair to say? You've done a bit bit of stuff with each other thereafter? Yeah, uh, we have, yeah. Um, 
he was on 20 penalties at the time. So, uh, you know, I, when his record got to, I think, 48, missed one. Obviously, it was a, it was a record I was really proud of because he, 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 he was top draw. He was one of the best striker of the balls that, that we've ever come across in our time anyway. So, no, his agent uh, gave me a call and, and Matt was having it. He got voted into the Hall of Fame and there was a big, big do on in Southampton, a big theatre down there, you know, about 1,500 people there. And he was... Um, he had all his ex-managers interviewing him, Chris Nicholl and uh, uh, Laurie McMenemy. They were all there, and Dan Walker was um, was doing the the talking and all that. Well, his agent had contacted me and said, "We want to have a bit of fun. It's at a theatre. We've got a full-size goal. We've got the floodlights shining down. What we're going to do is, at the end of the show, we're going to draw the curtains back, and you're going to be stood there in the goal. Are you up for it?" I went, "Of course I will." Yeah, so I drove down to Southampton. And we waited there and uh, Dan Walker said to him, well, let's talk about your penalties. And they're going, oh, you were brilliant at it. And he says, yeah, but you did miss one. He said, yeah, I did. He said, uh, it wasn't the best penalty that I've taken. He says, well, let me stop you there because we're going to give you a chance to redeem yourself. Nice. So as he did said that, the curtains opened and I was stood there in the goal. Anyway, you... I can't say what he said. But anyway... <laughs> anyway so he took the penalty again, and I saved the penalty no. again on the theatre. So it was a great way. But we've become friends over it. Uh, we've got massive respect for each other. We're both on the after dinner circuit, and we we speak not too often, but via social media, we see each other happy birthday, and and I tell him I'm still living off that pen save, and he just uh, I think the anniversary of it, anniversary of it, he always sends me a message saying. Oh, I've been dreading today and all that, like, so... <laughs> nah, good, good, oh, good banter. No, there was a question I wanted to ask you in terms of where you're at at the moment, because I appreciate you're not in the game as it currently stands, but do you have plans to get yourself back into the game? I'll be honest, mate, at the moment, I'm just enjoying time with the family and forgetting about it. I'm working for Radio Sheffield a lot, which I enjoy. I didn't realise I'd enjoy the punditry as much as what I do, so, oh. again, you get to see... Lots of footballers, lots of goalkeepers, and you know you can you can do the comment. I enjoy the commentary, so I'm doing plenty of that at the moment. So yeah. I've got no intentions at the moment going back in, mate. I've got to be honest. I mean, for me, it was more physically. You know, just the amount of injuries and what have you. It was and yeah. even, even the coaching side. I don't know if you had that, but serving hundreds of footballs and I yeah in the evening, I'm you know my, my knees killing me and other bits. I just um, I have got a problem. I have got a problem with the pins and needles in the foot, like from a back injury, but one that. I can walk with and not have too much problems. But like you say, the serving on a regular basis, sometimes on the night, the, the foot's actually numb. But it's just like, it's just changed me. It's just like, at Knox County, I was leaving at six in the morning to get there for eight, for a meet, for a meeting that you never really probably asked too many questions that you didn't need to be there for. And then you're like leaving, going through video after video after video after games or after training and getting home at six at night, mm. six days a week. And I didn't feel as though you got the appreciation that you deserved for, for the job that you were doing. And I was 35 years rich from being 17, 35 years in the game without a break. I was ready for it. Sometimes you just get a little bit stale and I got a bit fed up. The jobs that I'd had were, were fine, but for the amount of the effort of the work and that you don't really... You don't really get a lot. When You know, when you're having a bad season, it's a grind. One thing I've always done when I've done it, I've always done it right. 
And I just found the last couple of years that, if I'm honest, I weren't, weren't doing the job right. I was like wanting to get home and, you know, so I thought I wanted a break. But then when we got the sack at Chesterfield, because I've always gone everywhere with John Sheridan. Yeah. Um, so when we got the sack, my last job was at Chesterfield. When, when he got the sack on the 2nd of January this year, I got asked to stay on, but I just, my heart wasn't in it, mate. You know what I mean? Mm. So I left, but then when I did leave, I thought, oh, it's a bit weird, this day-to-day running now is a bit weird. And I like went into a little bit of, like, got really, really lazy. Didn't come out of the bedroom. Then my dad got cancer and thought we'd lost him. And I started suffering for the first time, like, mentally, like, really bad. Um, went on a right downer. I couldn't understand why because I thought I was ready for the break, but obviously when they come out of it, it's a bit of a shock to the system, you know, like being told what to do, when to be there, what you what you're eating, when you're eating, where you're traveling, why you're traveling, and you, I think you're so regimented when you're in football and it's drilled into the brain that it trains the brain that you're here there, and once you come away from it, it's a massive it's a massive hit. No, like I don't. I... I mean, we touched on it a couple couple of times there in the pod, you know, just, I like the simplicity of what it was in, in, I do miss that to an extent, you know, when you're saying, like what Brian Clough's saying to you about just keep it out the net, you know, it's now, yeah. I mean, it's gone to, yeah. to an extreme now. Um, yeah. You know, I feel sorry for some of the, like, talk about mental health, some of the, you know, you make any kind of error in a game now and the the, the abuse oh. that you can get on social media. Oh, oh God. God. It's horrendous. Um, and do you know what, mate? I feel as though there's no, there's not enough help for it mm. as a club. What I mean is like club employing someone full-time to deal with them kind of things. I know I worked with a girl called Claire um, Davidson at Notts County and she was intrigued on the mentality of the goalkeepers and I did a lot of work with her and a lot of information, simple information I gave her was massive information for her. She now works with England, but she wanted to specialise on goalkeepers and I think especially the big clubs, you know, with the abuse that you can get on social media and that now, because you, the, it, 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 it can destroy you. Yeah. I mean, I used to felt, I don't know about you, but I used to come home some Sunday nights, some Sunday nights and not sleep for two days. Oh, it's the same. Yeah, thinking and running over the game, I think, oh, why didn't I do that? Why did, oh, if I'd have only have done that there and, you know, mm. all, all that. But I don't think there's enough help. I really don't think there's enough personal help there. And a lot of managers just go, another thing I was going to say as well, like, I had it with a manager turning round on the bench constantly going, what's he doing? What's he doing? Why is he doing that? I don't know. Ask him. Well, you coach him. Yeah, I do coach him. But once he crosses that white line, I can't go and, I can't, I can only put the information into him. If he doesn't do it, I can't do any, oh, I told you, I don't like goalkeepers. I don't like goaling coaches. You've never got any answers. Says, let me tell you something. Don't ever turn around to me on the bench and speak to me like that again. So if you've got a problem with me, Call me into your office and we'll speak about it. Don't embarrass you and don't embarrass myself in front of seven subs and the rest of the staff that are all laughing when you turn around and do it. I said to him, don't speak to me like that. Yeah. Who do you think you're speaking to? Mm. He, uh... did, he didn't like it when I said to him, <laughs> <laughs> play without one then. Yeah, I was doing it as if you said the right, okay. <laughs> I don't like goalies and I don't like goalie coaches. I'm just like, you know, I goes, well, why don't you play without one then? <laughs> What's he doing though? That's the classic thing, isn't it? What's he doing? You hear that a lot. What's, What's he, he doing, doing, the goalkeeper? Yeah. 
Okay, well, let's get on to The Walking because I'd love to know what made you start on Twitter with these videos and the singing in particular. Was there a moment that you consciously decided that this was something you wanted to do or did you just randomly do it one day and it's then snowballed because you now have this whole walking is brilliant phenomenon. You've got hats, you've got T-shirts, you are going on excursions with fellow players. Great, it's just brilliant. Yeah. I think how it come about was like I'd lost my job. My dad had, uh, my dad had. I thought we thought we were going to lose my dad, and I'd just come out of work, and I was struggling with the day to day routine. Although I said before I was ready for a break from football, uh, spend a bit more family time. Um, I struggled, uh, like mentally. I got I got down really down, and when you think you're going to lose your dad and everything, you, you know, I, everything just got on top, and I really really struggled. I didn't handle it very well. Uh, a friend of mine just said, I go walking a lot. Why don't you come out? It's really good for the mental health and um, really, really helps me on a day-to-day basis. So I went for a walk with him. I said, how far are you going? He said, oh, we'll do about six, seven, eight miles. I went, are you joking? There's a car on the drive there. That's, that's what that's for. <laughs> now, since then, I went out that day. Uh, I, I got really into it started doing it every day uh early mornings or, or or late at night and i found it was really really helping me and then it brought back i was really good friends with gary speed and it brought back because i was getting a lot of feedback I was doing the videos for kind of a little bit of banter at first on on twitter just to keep myself in touch with the with the real world and the football world because it's what i've always been like i noticed that it was people with mental health issues that were and, and that were, that were re- responding to it, saying, you're really, really helping. I've taken up walking. It's really, really helping. And I just saw, I just thought, you know, if this is helping people and it's helping me, can, can we take it to another level? So I con- contacted Chris Kirtland, who I'd worked with before, who had been quite open speaking about his, his problems. So I spoke to him about a bit, a bit of advice. Uh, I got myself really, really down. So I got a bit of help from the PFA with Sporting Chance as well with a few sessions. Um, and then I've been, I was good friends with Dean Windass, who was, uh, he's quite openly said he's had suicide attempts and everything. So, uh, Steve Howey, John Parkin, all players that have opened up and spoke about their problems after football. And I thought, I want to put this group together if I can. Uh, and that's exactly what's happened. And it seems to be helping a lot of people. So now we've, we're becoming a charity. We're still actually waiting for the charity number, but we've become a, Hashtag Walking's Brilliant and a Watch Foundation charity, uh, Walking and Talking Charity Hikes. Obviously, I spoke about Gary Speed, uh, who was close to me. He was close to a lot of people. And I just thought, there's an avenue here to help people and give a little bit back. As a person that's been in the public eye all their life, or a group of players, players that have been in the public eye all their lives, people have just responded to it. We've opened up all our social media to private messaging, you wouldn't believe some of the message, personal messages you get about some of the states that people are in. So we're not doing it for attention. We're just doing it because it's kind of fell on us, really. Uh, we enjoy getting together and going doing the walking as well. We enjoy the, the challenges, the hikes that we do. And if we can raise a, little, a few quid in the meantime, uh, we've involved the, the, men, the mental side. The NHS have struggled with uh, people... Uh, with with mental issues as well, so we want to help them, and we want to help all small organisations that deal with mental 
issues, men and women. So that's where all the funds are going, and we are raising a lot of funds, and that's where it's all getting distributed to. So it's kind of that's the story behind it, really. Brilliant. That's fantastic. Do you have a website people can go to? Yeah, we, uh, well, the website's www.walkingsbrilliant.com. Uh, you can get us on social media, obviously, the Walkings Brilliant on social media. But yeah, it's going really well. So we, our aim was at the beginning, if we can save one person's life, we, we've done we've done pretty well. But I can guarantee you now that it's not gone. It's not one. It's not ten. It's not hundreds. It's into the thousands. Mm-hmm. Amazing. No, fantastic. Well, look, uh, Norm, this has been, I mean, an absolute pleasure. It's uh, been a lot longer than I anticipated, but it's just it's just flowed so nicely. So look. Yeah. No worries. The, the the last question we ask everybody the last question, um, a simple question, but we get a variety of answers, and that question is, uh, Mark Crossley, what has goalkeeping given you? It's given me, um, it's made me the human being that I am today because it can be a lonely old place out there and it makes it's made me understand how others feel when they're in that position. Mark Crossley, thank you very much for joining us. Is that all right? <laughs> <laughs> Well, that was brilliant. Really, really enjoyed that. He is a storyteller. I know we said at the top of the podcast that we didn't want to delve into some of the stories that he's told so many times, but you almost felt it was built inside of him that he just couldn't help but talk about Brian Clough and Nottingham Forest and all those stories from way back when. Yeah, absolutely. And some of the things he touched on. It's so interesting how the game's evolved. And look, to a large extent, of course, it's evolved for positive reasons and in a real positive way. But some of the stories that he touches on kind of makes you miss them days. It does, it does. One particular story, which I didn't expect we were going to get the answer from that we did, was the 92 League Cup story. Genuinely, I was just interested, had no idea... Why didn't you play in the 92 League Cup final, Mark Crosley? Yeah, I was in prison. Oh, right, okay, cheers. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know what I really liked about that? A couple of things. One, actually, from Brian Clough's point of view, in that... How's that for management? Because ultimately, I'm sure that he knew that Mark Crossy was the better goalkeeper, and I just suspect Andy Marriott at the time. But my assumption is that he did rate Mark Crossley over Andy Marriott, and yet he decided to punish Mark Crossley that he wouldn't play him in that final, even though that might have been to the detriment of the team. But to be that strong in your management, to teach a lesson in the way that he did, a lesson which, by the way, was very much received, it seems, like that's huge from a management perspective. Yeah, really huge. And so much great stuff there, really, about Brian Clough and so many other brilliant stories as well. The fact that for the first part of his time at Nottingham Forest, and we know that goalkeeper coaches weren't as commonplace as they are now back in the day, but there was no goalkeeper coach at Forest until Frank Clark came along, which was the 93-94 campaign, right? So the season after the inaugural Premier League campaign. No goalkeeper coach. He said, we went and did our own thing. That was him, Hans Sagers and Steve Sutton. And after they'd done their own thing, they then played outfield. But he just said, you just knew what to do. We just got on with it. It is bizarre. And I didn't touch on this during the podcast, but I do remember when I was young and I was at Watford and we must have been talking 97, 98. And even then, they only had a goalkeeper coach in one day a week on a Thursday. And it was exciting for the goalkeepers. I remember it was Alec Chamberlain and Kevin Miller, I think it was at that time. And it was almost 
a treat when you had your goalkeeper coach and the manager would allow the goalkeepers to stay with the coach for an hour, an hour and a quarter because it was the one time in the week when they actually had goalkeeper coaching. It's crazy to think that it wasn't that long ago. And the simplicity of goalkeeping. I know you said afterwards that you actually missed those days a bit. Brian Clough, just stop the ball going in the back of the net. I don't care how you do it, just stop it going in the net. And ultimately, that's what goalkeeping is. And we get lost sometimes. And naturally, with this show, we go into real detail and we're looking to improve at all times. But we do make that note very regularly that sometimes you're not the most orthodox in what you do. But that is still the job. That will never change. Can you keep the ball out the net? Providing you can keep the ball out the net and you're keeping clean sheets and your teams are winning, you're doing all you need to do. Yeah, and I think one of my favourite bits was the fact that he said it was awkward with Hans Sager's and Steve Sutton and Paul Crichton, who was there for a bit as well. I don't like this mate's business, is what he said, sharing cars to training. We've never had that from any other goalkeeper. We've asked that question a lot in the past about the relationship between one, two, and three. And everyone to a man and a woman has said, no, no, we all get on absolutely fine. It's not a problem with us whatsoever. Mark Crosley, no, not fine at all. It was awkward. I wanted his job. Yeah, which is it's fascinating. And actually, there is something in that, in that... Naturally, we are all competitive. It is one of the strangest places to be as a goalkeeper, especially if you're not a number one goalkeeper. Realistically, how are you ever going to get your chance? It's either going to be an injury, sending off, or a loss of form, which are all negative things to happen to your teammate. But ultimately, it needs to happen if you are going to get your chance. So naturally, you are quite competitive, even if you are one of these goalkeepers that really gets on with the other goalkeepers, which, in fairness, I was. I always got on well with the other goalkeepers and had a realisation that it wasn't necessarily their fault that I wasn't playing. But of course, there is that competitive instinct that you have that if they do have a bit of bad fortune and that's going to be your good fortune, that can only be a good thing on a personal level. So I do get it. But like you say, it's very unusual to hear someone say that. And lastly, I would say he is quite old school, isn't he? And part of me just felt a little bit sad about that in a way. I don't know, because I do think that times have changed and I do think that it just felt in the way that he was talking that he couldn't relate to the game now in the way that he was able to in the past. I'm not saying that's a, a good or a bad thing, the standard disclaimer that we have to say every time we, we go into that. But Brian Clough, like Mark Crosley, was quite straightforward in his approach. And I think when he spoke about penalties, mm. that's a prime example of that. He actually said, I don't need to look at analysis. I don't need people to tell me that they've watched 10 games where this guy has gone a certain way in his penalties. I had a gut. If he was right-footed, I often went right. If he was left-footed, I often went left. If I guessed, I guessed it worked. Mm, quite a pure way of playing the position, I think it's fair to say. Look, like I said, and that's why I touched on it earlier, that I do miss some of the things from back then, you know, and it was when I was very young. So when I was sort of 16, 17 coming through, and I remember what it was like when we used to train then, and sometimes without a goalkeeper coach like Mark Crossley touched on. And it was just a very different game. Now, of course, it's been taken to a certain level, largely because of the finances involved now, that winning and losing means so much, not only in terms of pride, but also from a financial perspective. The game will continue to evolve because of that. The levels of excellence will continue to evolve because of that. But then there is an argument to say that maybe the enjoyment isn't quite what it was. Richard. Matthew. Thank you. Thank you. This has been the Goalkeepers Union podcast. Keepers away! Away!